This is Nate Hansen and Tim Ritter. We are Almost Heretical. You can find us online at almostheretical.com. Welcome back. Okay, Nate. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Respond. Oh, boy. Well, I mean, I remember telling people that they had to be literally afraid. Just in case you think this is just a, you know, a different meaning to the word fear here, we would, we would tell people, no, this means actual, like, trembling fear before the Lord because God could strike you down, basically. And he did in Acts. And so that's the fear of the Lord. And um, if you want to know anything about God, it needs to start there. That's the wisdom piece. That's what I. Uh, that's what I used to teach. Uh, so my church was on the opposite end of the spectrum, uh, and we we didn't want to be the fundamentalist church that you know traumatizes everybody to having this uh, terrified religious uh, mindset. But I remember uh, we gave, did a sermon series and. Basically, it was just a completely BS, strained attempt of saying, well, this word, which literally just means to to be afraid, it doesn't actually mean be afraid in all of the times it's used in this phrase of fear of the Lord. Because, I mean, really, truly, there's all this great stuff in the New Testament about how love (laughs) conquers fear and love casts out fear and... Uh, much of the gospel is is leading to us to not having to be afraid of God, right? In the book of Hebrews, it talks about going boldly and confidently into the throne room. Right. So we knew there was this tension with like saying, hey, be afraid, everyone, be afraid. Uh, and saying, you know, God loves you and in, in Jesus, you have nothing to fear. So we just made up, we couldn't couldn't figure out the solution to the tension. So we just made up, well, this doesn't really mean be afraid. It means like revere. You're supposed to like honor God right. or respect God. A bunch of Bible translations actually will put the word revere here, uh, which there's no actual justification for doing that. It just means the word to fear. So both ends of the spectrum. Here's, I mean, I just want to sort of put my finger on the tension, <laughs> right? Seems like part of the Bible is telling us to be afraid. And not only like, hey, be afraid, but like the beginning of knowing anything, the beginning of all wisdom, (laughs) the most important thing you could ever think and feel is that God is dangerous. And then the whole rest of the Bible, especially New Testament, seems to be trying to heal us from that exact same fear. Tim, do you think we need to be afraid of God? No. Do you think that Paul thought we should be afraid of God? These are rapid fire. Don't take me to chapter and verse no. right now. Okay. Do you think Jesus thought well, okay. we should be afraid of God? Ca- caveat. Yes, I do. But in a different sense. I think there there is a sense that having a higher power who will hold people accountable for evil which means evil people should be afraid of that higher power's accountability. Right. That's real and true and is a good thing in the world. That is very different than saying, hey, little five-year-old Johnny or Sarah, the first thing you need to know is you should be terrified. (laughs) Those Those are very different things, right? And part of this episode this week is going to point out that those also have very different sources and the ideas behind them of why we should be afraid are completely different. So you said something and referring back to your church experience, which was why, why should we be afraid of God? Why should we fear Yahweh? And it was because say it again. Why should we be afraid? Oh, because God can and has, struck people down for not being faithful enough, not loving him enough, not being truthful, not, you know, we'll go down the list, but that's happened, like Ananias and Sapphira, right? Right. So what I want to do, I've, I've made the point before uh, 
with the Nadab and Abihu story, the strange story in Leviticus 10, that we read into the text that something bad happened. They were consumed with fire. We read into that because that was God punishing them for doing something wrong. And this is just one case of something we've done all over the place. And and I think the sum, assumption that we all share, both your church and my church, Nate, whether it was, oh, this word doesn't really mean fear, or be terrified, be afraid, be very afraid. The assumption was that what we were supposed to be afraid of was what something God will choose to do to us. You can fill in the blank of like why, you know, you could use varying degrees of terms like God, because God is wrathful or because God gets angry or because God is violent, whatever. Just Justice. it was something God, yeah. God was going to do to us. And I think that assumption is actually not here in these texts. It's not the starting place. That's not why we're supposed to fear God. That is not why the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. And there's an entirely different assumption of why we should be afraid. I think that all came from the idea of hell the conception of hell that we had. It was easy to get to. If if that's the ultimate destination for someone who turns their back on God, then turning your back on God in little ways during your life, you know, why why wouldn't that lead to some sort of striking down or divine punishment that comes in the form of, you know, not getting the job you wanted or not, you know what I'm saying? Like it it makes sense that if that's the end game, then fear could mean a literal fear. Sure. Right? Yeah. If if hell is what most of us grew up believing hell was, like we are afraid. <laughs> We're terrified. Right? You don't have to tell us to be. You don't have to tell us we should be. Like we just were. And that's a, you know, a story we've heard from so many people. Uh, but let's go back to this Nadab and Abihu story and then we'll, we'll build forward from there. So remember the story is the beginning of chapter 10. And Nadab and Abihu, they're, they're priests. They're supposed to go do something in the temple. Uh, and either they do it wrong or they do it when they weren't asked to or they didn't do it in the appropriate way. It's sort of vague, I think intentionally vague. And you remember what happens? And fire came out. <laughs> fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them and they died. So what I want to do is back up a few verses, put this story in context. We did another episode on the Nadab and Abihu story and how it's intertextually related. If you're further interested, go check it out. But, okay, the whole first nine chapters of the book of Leviticus, we're going to get into this in detail soon, are setting up the, the tabernacle. They're installing this entire priestly system that much of the series is going to be looking into what was this thing even doing in the first place. And chapter 9, the the preceding chapter before this uh, strange story, is the day that the temple goes into operation. So this thing is a system. The temple is a system. And the system launches. (laughs) And you get to the end. So Aaron is performing his his duties as the high priest. And specifically, this is the first moment that the entire people of Israel, the people who, for instance, that phrase in the Proverbs, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of Yahweh, is, is directed to. Those people all come and stand in front of the temple and they are watching almost like a, like a crowd in the stands watching a football game or something. They're watching the, the temple begin. It's like somebody pushed the, the green light, the go button, and this whole new machinery starts to go into action. Uh, pretty soon I'm going to compare this temple to a, a nuclear reactor. The nuclear reactor has just turned on. <laughs> and the last couple verses, so, so Aaron comes out to the outside of the temple where everybody can see now what's actually happening. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them, and he stepped down after making the offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. When they came out and blessed the people, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. 
then fire came out from before the lo- <clears throat> then fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the portions of fat on the altar and when all the people saw they shouted and fell on their faces <laughs> it's the end of the chapter the very next word is now Adab and Abihu the sons of Aaron took their respective fire pans dot 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 what what's the what's the <laughs> Just observe something here. This whole system is launched. The temple, the tabernacle, no temple yet, but the tabernacle is installed, begins to do its thing, and what is everybody's basic reaction? It's utter terror. <laughs> Why? Because what they see is, is fire. Like, their experience of this actual thing is, is the 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 essence of danger fire right the thing you can't come too close to you can't touch and so then you get this story of these two priests in the nuclear reactor doing something that's not quite the way it's supposed to go and they get burned with fire but wait are you kind of equating god here to a nuclear reactor yes exactly i but I just have, I have a lot of things came to my head. Like it seems very, uh, I guess, volatile. It seems very trigger happy. <laughs> I don't know. Like that's not the right word. I can't think of it, but like unhinged, like it seems just like a crapshoot. Like what could happen? Uh, this chemical reaction basically could happen at any given time. Not this like loving, thought out, thoughtful being. Does that make sense? It does. It does. But I'm going to repeat something I've shared in the last two episodes to try to sort of move this argument forward. Does it say anything negative about, if you think of God as a being, does it say anything negative about God's character, whether he's loving, whether he's kind, sorry, whether God is a loving being or a kind being or a merciful being? or a parental being, if you also point out that potentially God is made of, say, a fiery, dangerous substance, that God might love you and also be incapable of standing in a room with you without you dying, right? Now, I know that's weird, and it it certainly ruins our sort of fuzzy... Jesus is my best friend living in my heart <laughs> picture, right? Yeah. But it's also, it's it's a comparison I made before. That's, that's not actually saying, you know, like when we use the space analogy, it doesn't say anything bad about God's character to say that humans can't live in space, right? But when we haven't understood it in those kinds of analogies, and what we've taken this to mean is fear God because God might kill you. When we haven't used that kind of analogy, and instead what we've said is, if God doesn't like what you do, or if you don't do things in the perfectly appropriate religious order, right? If that's what Nadab and Abihu were supposed to be doing. You didn't follow right. all of the divine instructions. God will become dissatisfied or angry and then will be violent and potentially kill you for breaking God's rules. That says something about God's character, right? This other thing we're saying, this idea of potentially, uh, the case I'm going to make, what we're seeing here, and we're going to go look at more evidence, is that the baseline assumption that I believe these writers, the writers of the Old Testament text, would have shared with any other people living in ancient times, is that gods are not to be taken lightly. There's something about the essence, the substance of God or gods that is incompatible with with human flesh. And that is why we should be afraid. So what I'm actually going to make the case for, so I we talked last time about the the main, I think the main story, if you were to pick one of the, the themes that is carried from beginning to end of the Bible. It's there's this tragic separation between God and humanity that's looking for resolution and that distance being reconciled, 
And that is the proclamation that the New Testament makes that Jesus is doing. The, the entire story of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, are that this is reaching a pinnacle in this moment right here in Leviticus. Leviticus is the, the pinnacle moment where God has rescued this nation of slaves decided God will live with them and be their God. That's something that gets repeated often. And will dwell with them in a land. And the way that has to happen is they have to build a house for God. They have to build a whole system that will keep different levels of separation between God and the people. And then they have to follow a tight set of what I'll compare to of hazmat protocols in order to maintain safety within that proximity. So I think part of the thing that we have missed is, yay, God's going to to live with Israel. Israel will be with them. They get to be in the promised land. What we've totally missed, because we haven't shared these same assumptions about cosmology, is that this is actually this moment right here the moment where God shows up to Moses and then God tries to show himself to the people of Israel. And this moment in Leviticus 9 where God appears in front of the tabernacle to the entire nation, this is also the scariest and most dangerous moment in all of Israel's history. This is, as, as much as you can say this is a high point, <laughs> when it comes to risk and danger and fear, that high point is also a low point. Okay, before we dive in here a bit more, I want to ask you, Tim, to all the listeners out there, why, and to me, <laughs> why do you feel like this, what we're about to talk about here, why do you feel like this matters like in our lives? What does this change? How much of your Christian life, Nate, let's just say the first, first 10 years of adulthood, how much of your life were you af- afraid in life because of your Christianity? I mean, a lot of it. I think we even have an episode, one of our early episodes, called I Used to Be Terrified of God. I think that was me <laughs> talking there in that title. Um, my, my whole approach, and you've heard it come through in this show over the episodes that we've done, is, is relearning and, and unlearning some of that fear that I had towards God, uh, even just stuff that I put on myself of like, I need to be radical enough. I mean, I was, I was one of the forerunners into the radical movement. Um, I, I uprooted my whole life for that radical movement, this belief that I needed to have this crazy love for God. And if it wasn't crazy enough, then I wasn't really a Christian. Um, and even though I had lots of friends that would remain Christian, but got out of that movement because it was too much of a burden, too much, too fear-based for them. And they couldn't listen to the sermons anymore. And they couldn't listen to those teachings anymore. They wanted to be a Christian, but not that type of Christian. I just counted them as not radical enough uh, on the verge of not being a Christian anymore and, and pressed in wholeheartedly um, until I realized that fear and hell are horrible motivators because they work. And that was sort of my wake up call and my realization to where I stopped teaching. And I kind of pulled back and was like, what am I saying? Why do I, why am I motivating this way? Um, so yeah, I would say a good portion of what I was taught, um, all in love and all with the best of intentions. And then what I went on to teach for the 10 years that I was involved in ministry were a fear-based vision of this divine being, God, that created and supposedly loved us. And that's where it gets really scary is when you start saying, you know, we've talked about it before, calling things that aren't loving, love, and calling things that aren't good, good. That's what I was wrapped up in, and that's what I was a part of. Um, so yeah, I to answer your question, I think a good portion of my life and many others that I know have been involved in a fear-based vision of God. 
Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Oh, Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian, I sense the Lord at work here. Mm, it works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. <laughs> um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> And I, and I think if somehow we could, that, that story, Nate, your story, I share much of that, but it's so many modern Christians' stories. And that fear permeates everything, permeates relationships, sexual relationships, the way we think about our life, our futures, our work, all those things. Uh, so many of us, I think, are taught to be afraid, ironically, tragically, by Christianity, yet, I believe this without a shadow of a doubt, I think it's very clear if you could pull back from all that, Jesus believed what he was doing was liberating us from fear. Paul believed that the meaning of Jesus was the effective liberation of fear such that we didn't have, we didn't even have death to be afraid of anymore, let alone being afraid of God. Presuming you're not a violent, torturous human being who's trying to oppress other people. Presuming you want to live a life of, of truth and goodness and beauty and decency. You have nothing to be afraid of. That was Jesus's good news. That was what Jesus and the New Testament writers believed that Jesus accomplished. But when we misunderstand this, when we misunderstand why the Old Testament is telling us we should be afraid or telling its audience to be afraid, that it's wise to be afraid, then we don't have a resolution to this apparent tension, right? And what we've seen time and time again is the way it's supposedly resolved ends up being a way that teaches us to be afraid of God because of who God is and how God feels about us. So let's get get back to this metaphor and explore it a little bit, how that might actually free us from this paradigm. I think, to, let's use a couple analogies. One analogy is that when God and mankind come into contact, it's like dropping Alka-Seltzer into a soda bottle. All right, if anybody's ever seen the old science fair projects. Oh, yeah. Hey, I'm a huge Mythbusters fan here, okay? Oh, yeah. So it, it creates an explosion. It's explosive. Not because the Alka-Seltzer is guilty or sinful or awful. Not because the bottle of soda hates us. <laughs> because those two elements are explosive upon contact. Uh, another analogy is, is this one of a nuclear power plant. Can create tremendous good. Can be a tremendous blessing and empower people. This was the, the idea that for God to, to dwell with Israel and be with them, meant blessing and power and abundance and the ability to work and accomplish in the world this grand restoration project. It also just means, if any of you watched the recent Chernobyl series, tremendous risk. You're playing with fire. That's literally, figuratively, the, the image that is most often assigned to describe the danger. It's actually where this, I think, the origin of this idea of like refiner's fire that come into contact with God and it'll be this sort of holy fire that purges us. That imagery is secondary from the idea that it'll be a fire that utterly des destroys us. So let's just look at a few pieces of this. One, do you remember, how does Moses first encounter God? Burning bush. A, a fire. Fi a bush on fire. And it, the text goes out of the way to point out that the bush isn't going away. 
you know, the bu- the bush isn't burning down. It's not consumed. Yeah. Right. As a way of pointing out that it's because the bush isn't burning, God God is a fire over there in the bushes. <laughs> and what is the first thing? You probably won't remember this. What is the the first thing that God says to Moses when he gets close to the bush? Is it don't be afraid? It's don't come any closer. <laughs> it's oh. the opposite. It's you better be afraid. You take one more step. Essentially, this is the implication. You take one more step, you're going to die. But then what we see is the reason why he's told that is because he needs to like take off his sandals because the place where he is 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 holy. So it's not just a sheer, hey, don't don't come too close. You're going to get burned here. Because otherwise, you'd leave your sandals. You'd leave every single thing you had on your body <laughs> to, no, to not get burned. But it's, it's two things. And in a future episode, we're going to redefine what holiness means. And this is actually an important scene. First thing is do not come any closer. Why? Because I'm on, I am fire, right? You, you will be hurt. The second thing is take off your sandals because you're standing on holy ground. Why? What's the, the connection between sandals and, and holiness is, is not about, okay, you, you can take off your sandals and come closer to me. It's that wearing sandals, sandals are the thing that carries all of the dirt from all of your walking during the day. And it is a, a form of impurity. So because this mountain that Moses is on is apparently actually divine space, it's God's abode. Like We talk about people encounter God on mountains as this intermediary space. There are two things happening. And it's essentially a little little vignette, which is exactly how the temple's going to work. Don't come too close or you will die and follow proper protocols. Like this isn't any ordinary mountain, right? Don't just walk all over the thing. Uh, and what we'll see in the, the temple protocols is that much of the rules are given specifically, some are, are given in the sense of it, it seems like maybe to, to not dishonor God or to treat God with a sort of reverence. Many of them are given literally so that people won't die. And again, it's not so God won't kill them. So we'll get into some of the details of how the laws are working to protect people. But just let me read a few verses that are very clearly making the case that the purpose of the laws is to keep people alive in the nuclear reactor, to use that that metaphor. Remember, I actually read one of these in a past episode. Uh, Deuteronomy 4.1 says, Follow the laws so that you may live. And I asked you, Nate, Kind of how would you, in your past life and church world, how would you have interpreted interpreted that so that you may live? And we talked about how for most people, it's it's not actually very literal. It's more of a like, so that you might live well, or so that you might live... Yeah, abundance, a better life, you know, your full true self that you, you know, all these kind of figurative meanings. Right. It means so that you may stay alive so that you may survive. Follow the laws and instructions so that you may survive. Deuteronomy 4.10. Okay, so you're, you're talking about this like, you know, you're about to enter Chernobyl, let's say. Here's the list of rules that you need to have. And you're saying that's what the law, that's what Leviticus was. Here's the list of rules you need to have in order to engage with this space. If you don't follow these rules, it's like I almost picture like the tour guide giving the, this, this little speech before you you know open the doors and and walk into the into the building if you don't follow this list of rules like i'm not going to kill you <laughs> you're going to kill yourself you're going to you're going to die because you didn't follow the rules and these rules are outlined here to protect you from this thing that is good and dangerous right not cuz you're a bad person not cuz i'm going to punish you not because... Right, okay, so is Aslan C.S. Lewis's conception of this, is that anywhere related to this? What, that line that uh, Aslan isn't safe? Yeah, exactly. I, I don't think C.S. Lewis saw this. I think C.S. Lewis meant that simply wrestling with the moral tension of 
we've talked about this before. You need justice to have restoration. And therefore, you need accountability for, for evil, right? If we removed all justice systems and let all 7 billion of us people get away with anything we ever wanted to get away with, that does not heal the world. Uh, but neither does just endless punishment heal the world, right? So we've made the case that, that the, the justice that the Bible has in view, the justice especially that Jesus embodied, was a restorative justice that is aiming to restore. That is the goal, and, and there, as a subsidiary necessity to that goal, just because many people, like we typically use, the Hitlers of the world, uh, will not comply. And therefore, we have to be able to believe. Oppressed people have to be able to hope for a higher power. I think that's what what C.S. Lewis was wrestling with. Right. And interestingly, that there is some overlap here. And I think part of why, understandably, we haven't read these texts as being about an intrinsic danger, but have been about God's punishment, is what you see in the Levitical laws that are laying out how to survive this new situation of living with God in shared space is there are punishments for breaking the rules. We'll get into these in detail. Sometimes the punishment is to be kicked out of the camp, but other times the punishment is actually a death penalty punishment. And I think the best way to understand that is Again, to use this nuclear reactor metaphor, if something happens, this whole thing can blow up. And so I think the logic, and I'm not saying you need to like how this sounds, I think the logic is if one person is a risk to blowing this whole thing up, it's better to get rid of that one person than let the whole thing blow. And whether that's the best way to articulate that or whether they're, you know, I'm not asking you to think about God in those terms. I'm saying I think that's one logical way of understanding there's, there is a difference between all of these that the reason that, that the author of Proverbs and many others, including the writers of the Pentateuch, are telling us you should be afraid, it's wise to be afraid of God, are not because of that punishment sec- section. They're not because of those threats. They're because of the intrinsic danger. The threats are actually for people who refuse to take seriously life at a nuclear power plant. Potentially, they risk killing everybody, blowing the whole thing to, to pieces. And therefore, there's a threat of accountability, punishment for those people. So I, I'm not saying there's no... God doesn't do anything that God is passive, that the biblical authors uh, thought that God would just stand by and watch. I'm not saying that, but those are two different things. And I think what's pretty clear is that when you look at why the authors, like that scene we just read, they portray Israel as being terrified of, of the f- fiery presence of God. Not because God's mad or going to punish them. It has nothing to do with that. Just because God is close. That's why they're scared. That's that's the fear of the Lord. This other thing is a is an acknowledgement of of we all each of us owe accountability to to a higher power. Um, I think that's the C.S. Lewis piece. But what I've seen happen historically is that idea of a moral judgment just washes over the whole thing, right? And we read the whole thing through that lens. Uh, so let me just read a few lines just to to get this point across that the point of the laws, and then we'll get into, this will have some serious moral ramifications as Christians of what we do with Leviticus. Deuteronomy 4.10, Assemble the people before me so that they hear my words and learn to fear me as long as they are in the land. Remember, in the land is where God is now. This is a happy place, but also the most dangerous place in the world to be. And teach them to their children. Deuteronomy 4.40, the laws are so that you may live long, literally just so that you don't die a premature death. 
Deuteronomy 6.2, the laws are so that you and your children and their children may fear the Lord by keeping the laws so that you may enjoy long life. I've made the point before. Sometimes we don't take texts literally enough. We should take these texts enough. The laws were to keep people from dying in the land with Yahweh. That is why they're given. It's explicitly stated over and over and over again uh, that that's the point. It seems that that Nadab and Abihu story, the whole point of it was to show, here's how dangerous this is. If you weren't taking this seriously before, take this seriously in, after, and therefore especially if you're a priest who's going inside the tabernacle. We'll get into how priests are those who take extra levels of risk upon themselves on behalf of others. So just to make a small point, the point of God living with Israel in the first place, Israel was to be a a nation of priests, right? A kingdom of priests. The whole nation was to be a, a mediator between God and the world. So That is why Israel is supposed to accept this amount of risk, a higher level of risk. We'll get into some of the laws. Like, for instance, Israelites weren't supposed to poop in the camp. I thought it was just full stop. (laughs) They're living in a camp with God. So there's this whole line. It's like, go outside and dig a hole. Right. Don't you remember? You're you're living with God in this place. See, that was always just kind of like, you know, hey, you need to be on your best behavior around here. The king's here, you know? Like, right, it's honor. Present. I remember I remember a friend of both of ours would explain before worship sets, we're about to welcome the king to this room. How would you be, you know, you'd be on your best behavior. You'd be, you know, all the, anyways, that was how that was always used, I think. Yeah, so it always had a moral, a moral insinuation that, God was going to scrutinize your your morality, your behavior, your religious uh, faithfulness, and that thing had to be perfect. Uh, that's that's just not that's not the case. This will raise a very interesting, fascinating, complicated question of those laws in Leviticus and this whole system that seem to be just about how we treat one another and sort of more the moral laws and this sort of breakdown. How does that protect us? We'll, we'll get into that. Uh, but so the big picture idea is priests are those who have to get close to God to act as an in-between. And so priests take on more risk than the people they are, they are mediating for on behalf of. So the reason Israel was supposed to accept taking on this, this risk, living in this dangerous, uh, close proximity to God was that was their honorary job. It was their high calling to to be priests to the world, uh, but it's a it's a dangerous calling, and so there's this very interesting scene in Exodus 19 and 20. So so Moses has this meeting with God as a as a flame in a in a bush, right? Right. But then later, God wants to appear to first the elders and then all of the nation on the mountain. And this is the moment where Moses is the ultimate priest, but the entire nation is being invited to go meet God. And uh, one of the best scholars I've read on this who who made a really convincing argument is uh, John Salehammer, who argues, uh, essentially to summarize, that this scene, they say, yes, we want to be in a covenant. We'll do everything you say. We, We love that this is happening, essentially. And then it's like, okay, well, come up now. Now's the time. Come get close. And they all go, no way. I'm terrified. I don't want anything to do with it. Moses, Aaron, you guys go be priests for us and and mediate on our behalf. This is the moment when the idea of of a priestly nation, a priestly kingdom, becomes a nation with priests. So from that moment on, and it's because they are scared and there's this interesting tension of like, were they not supposed to do that? Were they supposed to do that? So then you just have like the brave few astronauts instead of all of us being people that regularly travel to go see other worlds. Exactly. And there's this sort of tension that's like, well, you were supposed to, we were all supposed to be brave. We were all supposed to go accept this mantle, this full democratic nation of priests where there was no hierarchy whatsoever because we all have equal access to God. But at the same time, 
you're not really supposed to beat him up for it because the whole point is you're supposed to be afraid of this God. (laughs) So it's kind of one of those ambiguous things where you can read it either way, where this is Israel. Remember, it's a a choose-your-own-adventure moment. This is at, at one moment Israel forsaking their duty, and another moment, this is Israel just just being wise uh, to, to understand that they're messing with, with fire here. So then a priestly system is put in place. And what we see from then on is the priests and then the high priest, who's sort of a priest in between the priests and, and God, they're the ones who actually go meet with God, and even they have sort of gradations of closeness that they can get to with God. And so the priests are the ones who are accepting more risk upon themselves. So actually, a good chunk of the laws in Leviticus are not aimed at the people. They are given specifically for the priests because the priests are the ones who are really accepting this risk. So that Nadab and Abihu story, it's not really about the people. It's about the danger of being a priest and all that has to happen for even a single human being to come into contact with God. But we're not supposed to lose sight that the whole goal is for all of the world to be reconciled, to be in a relationship with God. So, so we've had the way we, with, without seeing some of this stuff, in my past at least, the way we've sort of worked out of this tension is God wanted to be reconciled to the whole world, but it was, it was how God felt about us that was the obstacle. Yeah. And that obstacle had to be overcome. And I think the main obstacle that actually that these writers here are displaying for us, the main obstacle to be overcome, is just an intrinsic fact about life in this world as human beings. It's still true that the New Testament claims that Jesus overcame this obstacle for all of humanity. So the author of Hebrews says we can approach God with confidence, boldly, not being scared. We can just traipse right into the, the throne room. That's the, the picture, right? Nadab and Abihu tried that, or didn't even they didn't even just traipse right in. They were trying, apparently, <laughs> to do some sort of proper procedure, and they got blown to pieces, right? And we've been trained to think that's because God has changed how he looks at us because of Jesus. And I think the idea is actually that this intrinsic fact about the world, that it's dangerous for us to come into contact with God, that Jesus has changed that fact about the world. This danger, so I know this has been a hang-up for you, Nate, of like, do we need to believe this? Do we need to feel this? So let me shortcut this, at least for now. The the belief of the New Testament writers, which is the main reason you have any interest in this story, right? How Jesus gets looped into this. The belief of the New Testament writers, I believe, is that the obstacle is something to do with this, this cosmic danger, and that Jesus overcame that, which means you and I aren't supposed to be getting ourselves to think about how dangerous it would be for us to go contact God. We're not supposed to be trying to force ourselves to believe this stuff we're supposed to see that we have all the freedom in the world, right? That, that that has cast out any of this fear. But I, what I'm wanting us to see is let's certainly not convince us, convince ourselves of the, the Romans road type Christianity. That's like, do you feel guilty enough? Do you feel bad enough? God wants to do something to you or God will have to punish you. And you introduce God as a problem to people and then you introduce Jesus as the solution to, to that problem, <laughs> right? So on one hand, that view to me is, is problematic and it makes creates a litany of psychological problems for people. The trouble of this other one I'm introducing is it may just be weird and boring and you just might be not be buying any part of it, right? And I think we got to get in the middle. I think of politics sometimes and it's like when the, when the story isn't as you know, grabby and compelling but it's the true one, <laughs> you know, it's hard to get people motivated to go do something. Uh, when, when you have this motivation of hell and judgment and this God who wants to, or has to, either one is incorrect. I think 
punish you because you're not, you know, trusting enough in Jesus or you didn't trust in Jesus or you didn't love him enough or whatever. That is a much, it's a much more compelling story in the, in the sense. So I see what you're saying. Um, so I don't want to lose sight of this just because it might not be as compelling as that's that other alternate alternate story. My question here is about sin because not to go down a rabbit hole, but wasn't Jesus dying and saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Like I'm trying to save them from their sin. So how does that come into this? Did we, didn't we have like this problem with us that was called sin? And it's the fact that we make wrong, bad, selfish choices. We have the flesh, we have our own desires and we're always just going to go that direction. And so Jesus saved us from that. I think we may end up tackling that from a couple different angles. The first part that I've tried to show is that, you you know, like we said, this fear of the Lord, it's a phrase and an idea that pops up all over the Old Testament. The first piece I've tried to show is, well, what is that attached to, right? Why be afraid? Be afraid of of what? Like, what what will happen? And where you see it attached is just this natural contact. So, for, for instance, do you remember the story in Isaiah 6? I know it's usually used as, like, how to know when you've been called to ministry or whatever, but do you remember this Isaiah has a vision? That's when he basically is given his his task. He has a vision, and he's in the, th- the throne room with God. Yeah, kind of. And the line is, woe is me, meaning, holy crap, I'm terrified. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips from a people, people of unclean, unclean lips. lips. Yeah. Right? So what's the basic assumption? He's horrified because he believes in this whole idea that God is is dangerous to be close to. So even the high priest only goes in the, the actual space closest to God one time a year, and a whole bunch of stuff has to happen to make sure that goes okay. And Isaiah has a vision where he like wakes up and he's there, hmm. right? His first thought is, I'm dead. I'm a dead man. Not, forgive me my sins. Not, God, you're going to to whip me and kill me. It's just, I'm a dead man. So the next thing that happens in that vision, and we'll get into some of the different ways this is depicted, is that little coal scene, right? An angel picks up burning coal, which is the the image of, and it's not like charcoal. It's part of the animal that's been burned at the temple. It's burning there. The animal is the thing that contains the blood that enables contact, right? It's a hazmat suit in, in one metaphor for it. And so the angel, and, and it's all a vision, takes the, the animal, burning animal, touches Isaiah with it, and that symbolically in this vision, or not even symbolically, in the vision, it accomplishes the thing that allows Isaiah to be in that space. So, let's not read into that sin, right? Here's another one. So, you have the scene of the burning bush. You have the scene where God wants to show up on Sinai to all the people. Uh, but do you remember the other one where, where Moses asked God for his name? And, oh, and I am. Moses wants to tell them I am, yeah. Yeah. But there's the whole, uh, this whole moment. So the line is, no one can see me and live. It's just another way God is stating this basic belief, this fact. Right. You can't you can't be in my presence and live. But God wants, we'll get into how Moses is this ultimate priest who actually sort of supersedes all of these protocols, which ends up becoming a, a Jesus figure who someone is above all of this, uh, essentially. Uh, God wants to appear to Moses in a really, really close fashion, right? The, the line to sort of describe how special Moses was, was he was a friend of God, right? (laughs) Uh, Got to hang out with God in person. But because of the nature of what God is and how people are, God's like, hey, you have to go hide under this rock. And then I'm going to like sort of pass by around the other side of the rock and that's as close as we can get, right? Does that have anything to do with sin? Like Moses, hide under a rock, because you were a bad boy this morning? Okay. So I, I think I get where you're, where you're going with this. My hang-up is about sacrifices. 
from my understanding, a lot of the people groups at the time and still today make sacrifices before their God. And this is often killing something and laying it before an altar to that God. And supposedly, Yahweh is different. Yahweh's not like that. Why choose the exact same method, for the most part, method, killing something and laying it on an altar, and then have one small little twist of, oh yeah, but it's not actually about I needed you to give me something, this dead animal, but you need that blood in order to like make this make it so it's hazmat suits you can come in front of me that seems like a small twist but i would have made it something completely different because it's going to look like to everyone that god is this pagan deity that needs this you know the sacrifice he needs you to and then we we bring this into the the new testament in the church today like you need to put your money before this god you need to put everything you own just lay it down before this you know this pagan deity as a sacrifice these are the these are the words we say. So why do you get where I'm going with this? Uh, yeah, I do. So uh, it's it's complicated. And to tie off the last one, let me just uh, say, sin will be a part of this. Sin is one form of uncleanness that needs to be dealt with. We have replaced that with a whole. So we'll get into how the the temple system and these sacrifices do deal with sin. That's not the the main thing there to deal with. But to your bigger question of like, okay, lots of ancient cultures killed animals. They had these uh, rituals that were people, yeah, crazy. Sure, yeah, child sacrifice that was a real thing, which is a very interesting study in how the Hebrew Bible has morphed and evolved with and from child sacrifice. Uh, so one thing. I don't think that the way you're picturing when you say pagan sacrifices and appeasing these angry pagan deities, I don't know that any of us actually know that any people thought that's what sacrifice was. History is very difficult, and figuring out what people did from digging in the dirt is is somewhat easy because we're like, okay, there was this platform here, and this seemed to be like a altar that stuff was burned on and wait this is a bowl of bones like clearly lots of things died in this place we can see that people did sacrifice i think a lot of both in academic world and then people who are who are not professionally academic but espousing ideas have dumbed down all ancient peoples and have essentially accepted a a notion that in general sacrifice was about appeasing angry deities. And I think there's some of that happening in some places with some peoples, but I don't think that was the whole story for anybody. And I think it's far more complicated than that. When you think about the ancient people's relationship to food, how food was prepared, what they thought about the cost of a human life and the way that cost had to be taken from animals and even plants when they die to keep us alive that we are so distant from, like we don't even want to think about where our chicken nuggets come from, right? And we'll, we'll get into some of that. So I actually don't know that this is just taking this wrath appeasement system and making small tweaks to it. I think many ancient peoples might have thought far more differently and in more sophisticated ways about what these were doing, why do them, what the psychological effects were, how it would help the community, that sort of thing. Um, but I also think it's just worth noting, one thing I point out is my favorite piece about the Bible, the Hebrew Bible specifically, is that it is, it is self-critiquing literature. It is, it is literature written, written by a people critiquing itself, not written by a conqueror justifying why it was deserving of its victories, right? And one thing we have to acknowledge is that the Hebrew Bible as a whole moves beyond this system, right? Whether by force because they lost their temple and couldn't enact the system anymore, or by some sort of ideological evolution where they stopped thinking in certain ways. For instance, like I mentioned, maybe they actually stopped viewing blood this way at some point, but carried some of the meaning forward, right? 
So let's not take a, a, an unfair <laughs> uh, approach that says, okay, here in these first chapters, these people must have been sort of like crude, you know, primitive people. But then when the prophets are writing about, you know, the famous lines of, in, apparently in God's voice, saying it wasn't ever really these sacrifices I was interested in, but it was righteousness and justice, right? These were compiled by the same people who put the Torah, the Pentateuch there, and who put uh, the, the prophetic literature there. So it's all part of conveying some meaning. And I will say, too, that I think what's pretty obvious is that we've talked about sort of basic ideas of the date, the post-exile date, at which the the mosaic maker took all this stuff and made a piece of art out of it. Right. At that point, there there was not a temple system in operation, right? So whatever the reason for starting this whole thing with these books about the temple and including Leviticus, which is laws for running a temple <laughs> or, or a tabernacle, running the power plant in which Israel now finds itself living— it clearly had more meaning than, hey, if you ever find yourself living where God is in a tent next door, here's what you need to know, right? It was it was looking beyond itself. So there were different uh, iterations of this thing. And so let me just share one story, and then we'll, we'll wrap this conversation up. Last couple of episodes, I've sort of pointed out how the more we see some of this stuff, we can understand Jesus in a sort of better lens, right? It adds more color to why the New Testament might have understood Jesus in some of these ideas, using these ideas. So mm-hmm. there's a strange story in Judges 6 uh, with Gideon, and he sees the angel of the Lord. So the angel of the Lord is kind of a complicated figure. It's an angel, but it's also sort of sometimes just seems like it's God. Uh, Gideon sees the angel of the Lord consume a sacrifice in fire, just like that scene in Leviticus 9, right? <laughs> it's a scary thing, fire. And and Gideon's afraid he's going to die because he saw the angel face to face. Just mm-hmm. another one of these things. I'm too close to God, too close to God's angel, or whether this is God or God in person or what, and I think I'm going to die because it's fire, and fire kills, kills people. And the angel says, peace, you're not going to die. And, and I think there's something potentially even in a strange little story like this that is revealing some belief here that potentially angels or even someone like Moses, that there is space here for the belief that there could be a figure like a Jesus figure who is safe from both vantages, right? That intermediary substance who is safe. So Gideon sees this angel acting like God and thinks he's going to die. And the angel corrects him and says, actually, you can be at peace. You don't have to be scared anymore. I somehow am God's representative, God's image even here showing up to you, but you can be right here with me and you're not going to die. Hmm. So potentially there's evidence even in a strange little story like this, again, compiled here by the same person who compiled Leviticus (laughs) alongside just a couple books earlier, right? Uh, Who's maybe wanting us to move through this journey of different stages of development of this idea, a journey that Jesus would show up and say, I'm the end result of this journey, right? This ideological development was leading to me. So potentially... Like, like I said, potentially that mosaic maker doesn't actually believe that blood is a cosmic hazmat suit and that that this tabernacle system was like a nuclear power plant, right, in this uh, set of analogies. But I think he thinks that that's why this system came to be constructed in the first place. I think he believes that that's what the people, the person who wrote Leviticus and wrote these laws and passed them along that that's how they were thinking about it, right? And so he's saying this is the frame of mind that will give us the meaning from which we can make sense of the next stages of this development. And if we if we miss all that, and then we make up for ourselves this angry God 
and he can't be in the same room as sin, and so he's going to punish us. Like, we don't have any right of claiming we can understand either the next stage or the stage after that or the final stage of, of Jesus, right? And I think hopefully I've compiled enough evidence to at least poke holes in that view. Uh, and especially if you're someone out there who's basically been taught to be afraid be, by Christianity, uh, I hope this starts unraveling that entire thing. All right. Well, we don't have to be afraid of God anymore. And you laid out some pretty good reasons as to why. Uh, it does kind of change everything. So we'll probably talk about this more. I think anyone listening to this that grew up in this world is now hearing and thinking, but what about, what about, what about? <laughs> there's so many. Uh, and sin is just one of them. And I think there's even more to talk about when it comes to sin. But like, so what does this change about what we're supposed to be doing as Christians? Or like, is this actually, and I asked this last episode too, like, do you or do we believe or need to believe that that this is actually the the way things are, that there is this God who can't be around because of differences in the beings, us and, and this God, and so we need this covering in order to go. Like, is that actually real, or have we just better understood what the writers of the Bible thought was real? So I think there's a lot more to get into here, and I'm excited to do that. Thanks for spending some time with us. If you want to leave a rating for this show or a review, if you've enjoyed this and you're still listening to this point, it'd be awesome if you could hop over to iTunes and uh, tell the internet what you think about this show. And uh, you can also reach out to us at any time, contact at almostheretical.com. We read every single one. And then we have a second podcast that if you want to get, you can get that at patreon.com slash almost heretical. It's called Utterly Heretical. It's unedited and raw. All right. We will see you next time. Peace, y'all.